Father, I pray that as we have uh, decided at some point to be a part of a Bible study, to be part of this Bible study, I pray that we did that, Father, with the honest intention that it would grow us closer to You and cause us to be more effective in ministry for the glory of Christ and for the kingdom. We pray, Father, that that would be the effect of our study tonight, that we would not, uh, we would not simply be here because it's entertainment or, or in some other sense, Father, an activity that fills our week, but that we would genuinely see this as training, as, as a development process that You desire us to go through and that You've prepared Your Word for that purpose. And we would ask ourselves, Father, in the Word tonight as we study it, how is this, Father, to change us? And how is it, Father, that we can serve you better through our knowledge? And we uh, thank you, Father, that we do have this place and this opportunity to study and the hospitality of a fellowship that has granted us that, that opportunity. And we ask, Father, that it could be useful to you, not only in this place, but in many others through whatever means. We praise you and, and uh, thank you, Father, and say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stopped near the end of Isaiah's Little Apocalypse, that four-chapter segment that mirrors Revelation. The mirroring continues tonight as we finish it with the last chapter of the Apocalypse. Um, chapter 27 is still in the middle of the song. You remember the song we started last week? The, the song that the Jews are quoted to praise Jesus through in the Messianic or in the Millennial Kingdom. They come into the Kingdom, Jesus is reigning, and they begin to reminisce about how they got there and they begin to to talk about the, the, the strength and the, the wisdom of his teaching and of his judgments and so on as he rules the world. That's what we were doing last week in the song. Song goes into chapter 27. First verse we read last week says, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. All right, we said last... I think last week when we looked at this verse, we made it clear that the Leviathan is who? Satan, right? So let's think of it now. It's so much easier to understand what's going on in this chapter and, and really in all of what we've studied in this little section when we compare it to Revelation. We've said it's got the same basic structure. It flows from event to event in a pattern that's similar to the way Revelation is structured. That's given us, I guess, guideposts along the way. So if we've studied at the end of chapter 26, what? The song was sung during what period of time? Millennial Kingdom. And this is a question for those who have studied Revelation, I guess. Where in the book of Revelation does the Millennial Kingdom appear in the, in the structure of that book? Chapter 19 is the return of Christ at the very end. 20 is the beginning of the kingdom. By the end of 20, you've done what? Reached the end of the kingdom. And you're talking now about how that period comes to an end. And a new period starts in chapter 21, which is the new heavens and new earth. So if the song we saw start last week was set in the Millennial Kingdom, that would be comparable to chapter 20. There was one notable event that occurs at about the beginning of the Messianic Kingdom, Millennial Kingdom, and it involves Satan. He's bound, tied up for a thousand years, cast into the pit, left out of reach of humanity for a thousand years. In other words, the entire thousand years of more or less, almost all of the thousand years of the Millennial Kingdom exists without Satan's presence and therefore without his influence. Then at the end of that period, he is allowed to come out once more. We won't get to that tonight. But that's the event you're seeing paralleled now. If chapter 27, or 26 rather, was the start of the Messianic Kingdom, you saw at the very beginning there was that feast at the table and so on, and then their, their song began. Then when you look at verse 12, uh, 1 of chapter 27, in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan. 
What must that correspond to? It must correspond to the binding of Satan, the putting him in that state where he's off and out of limits for a thousand years. Now, at the end of chapter verse 1, you may have noticed, yes, Steve, but it says he will kill the dragon. Doesn't that refer to the end? Well, obviously, yes, it's only at the end of the thousand years that the death of Satan is finally uh, arranged. But from the point of view of the Jewish people, remember, this is a song sung by Judah. Are there ever going to be any more Jews who are subject to sin? We said last week, they all come into the Messianic kingdom without sin. So among the Jewish population, they're sinless forevermore. For them, from their point of view, even when Satan is finally let loose for a short time, does his letting loose affect them? He can't deceive them. They're incorruptible. The only ones who are deceived are the mass of Gentiles who've grown up in that period of time and are yet still fleshly, natural men and therefore sinful and therefore susceptible to the schemes of the enemy. That group is certainly affected by his release, but not the Jews. My point is, this in time sequence is talking about the binding of Satan. But from a Jewish point of view, that's the last they ever think of him or see of him. He never comes back in any form that can affect them. And for that matter, the little bit of time he gets left to run around at the end of the thousand years doesn't seem like it's a very uh, long period of time because it comes at the end and it's quickly followed by Christ putting him into the lake of fire. There's not really a, it doesn't appear to be a, an extended period of time for him again on earth. So uh, we know this is talking about Satan and his being tied up. Let me go through some of the words in that verse, that first verse, to kind of make the point. And I think there's another interesting element here that you may not have noticed that I think is very interesting for study of Scripture elsewhere. First, just beginning with the word Leviathan. You know what the word Leviathan is in Hebrew? It's a trick question. It's Leviathan. It is, in fact, a Hebrew word. So it is the word Leviathan. So it doesn't have a definition, except as it's derived out of the context. We see it as the name for Satan by definition, or a serpent, or as the text here describes him, a sea dragon, a dragon who lives in the sea. The serpent of old is the way Revelation describes him. So it's one and the same. It's Satan. He's connected. If you notice in this verse, this is one of the best verses in Scripture to connect two concepts that are true in the Old Testament. Satan is connected to both dragons or serpents, which is something you already probably knew. But he's also connected to what? The sea. The, the sea is specifically in Scripture a picture of the depths of hell. That is its constant use throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, sometimes we hear of hell or the depths described as the abyss in Greek, abusos. It's, it, it means that pit, that deep down dark place that you don't want to go. In Hebrew, the word for that is tehom, T-E-H-O-L-M, tehom. If you go looking for the word tehom, do you know what English words would show up over and over and over again? Either sea or deep. The word is synonymous for sea and deep. The Hebrew word for the abyss is the same Hebrew word for the sea. It is a picture of hell. It is a picture of death. Friends, that's why, as a side point here, that's why when God sets out to create the world, the earth, the first time in Genesis, he includes sea. But then in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, there is no sea anymore. And for many Bible students, that's always driven the, the obvious question, well, why not? I kind of like the sea. It seems like a nice feature. You know, to just see it disappear seems a bit arbitrary. Well, you're, you've got the cart before the horse. 
its appearance was really arbitrary when you think about it. We don't live in the sea. We live on land. We could probably have gotten away without a sea if God had designed the earth to, to, to do without it. Why did he include the sea? That's the more important question. And it's the same reason why he included dark to go with the light. It's the same reason why he included the moon to go with the sun. Features that don't exist in the new heavens and the new earth either. There's no night. There's no dark. There's no moon in the new heavens and new earth. For that matter, there's no sun in the new heavens and new earth. All of those features are symbols in our real world to communicate to us an underlying spiritual truth. You don't understand light if you don't know what dark is. You don't understand grace unless you understand what judgment is and wrath. And God, knowing that his world would eventually fall into sin through the mistake of Adam in the garden, he planted in the world in advance these symbols which could later be used in Scripture to make comparisons for our benefit. That we might understand what it means to go into the depths of hell if we peer into the deep ocean and understand that looks like it goes a long way down there and I don't want to be in there. Good, now you're getting an idea of what I mean when I say the depths pay home. So in the new heavens and new earth, there's no sin. Well, when you don't have sin, I don't need metaphors for it either. I don't need dark. I don't need moon. I don't need sea. The things that he put into the creation to give him substance to these thoughts, to these ideas, go away when the ideas themselves go away. In fact, if you ever want to do an interesting comparison for yourself, compare Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21. And look at the parallels in the way that the book structures the event, what's described, and yet look at the differences. There's something here that's not here. There's something here that's not here. Why are those things being taken out of creation? And if you look at each one of them, they have some relationship to sin or the fall or the enemy. Things that themselves don't exist in the new heavens anymore. So here you see the enemy being associated with, his, with two symbols that are consistent in Scripture for him or for his place, his dwelling place. The sea, of course, and serpents or the snake from chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, one cross comparison, by the way. Psalms 86:13. Look at how the psalmist says this. For you're talking to the Lord. He says, Your loving kindness toward me is great. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You know what the word depths is there? Tehom. The sea of Sheol, in other words. And so on. You get the point. So, the beginning of that period of thousand years, we see the enemy being bound. Going forward from there and staying in the order of, of events that occur in the book of Revelation... You, you have Satan out of the way. Now that Satan is out of the way in the world for the time of the thousand years, what does that give opportunity for? Well, in the case of Israel, it means now he plants them back in their land and for the first time they can actually live in their land and be fruitful in the sense that they are there to perform what God has always intended for them to perform. To live in communion with God to his glory and in obedience to his commandments. It's always been the goal. They've never been there yet. And he's often talked about their failures. And in one particular way, he used a metaphor for Israel's failure to bear fruit to God's glory. And that metaphor, we studied it already earlier in the book of Isaiah, was a metaphor of a vineyard. A vineyard that did not produce as God expected it to produce. Now, though, in this time, he is capable of producing the fruit that God expects. They are capable of producing fruit. Why? Because they've obviously been transported outside of sin and away from the enemy. Look at verse 2. Knowing we're still talking about the time of the Messianic kingdom. Verse 2. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. 
Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. It's diametrically opposed in its description of God now, the protector with no wrath, keeping the briars out, keeping the thorns out, allowing them to be nurtured in a garden setting, so to speak, and to produce so much fruit they can fill the world. If you want a comparison, go back into chapter 7 through about 14 or 11, I guess, when we were looking at the book of Emmanuel, and at one point in there there's a description of Israel as this unproductive vineyard in which God's going to allow the hedges to be torn down and all the, th- the, the thorns to grow up again and so on. Complete opposite picture. So this is the kingdom of believers within the Jewish nation that do, in fact, follow their Messiah. Now, the song of the little apocalypse ends here with Isaiah summarizing the Lord's plan regarding Israel. So think of this as sort of a summary of how the, this little book of the apocalypse comes together. And in this summary, what you have to follow, if you want to understand it, in terms of timelines, we've been thinking about the future, we've been out here in these future experiences. Now, snap back, you're back to Isaiah in his day, and he's speaking about these things now, looking forward to them. Summarizing this book of the apocalypse. Verse 7, Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them and their creator will not be gracious to them. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now Isaiah begins by asking, when God struck Israel in judgment, or from his point of view it will be a future event, when he strikes Israel in judgment, did he strike them so as to destroy them? That's the point of that first two phrases in in verse 7. Like the striking of him who struck them, has he struck them? When you think about it, when God strikes something, is there anything left of it? When God slaughters something, does it, does it ever reemerge? So when you think about it, I'm promising you, Israel, that in a future day you're going to live on this mountain and you're going to have all this glory. And he's just related three chapters of the future to Israel, a future that includes them, obviously, existing in their land. So his rhetorical question is, so when God goes after you, is it really to destroy you? Obviously not, is the answer, because you're still existing. I'm talking about it. So his point is to explain to them in context why God is taking them through this experience before he gets them to the point of glory. Why is there a time of judgment first? And is it to their destruction? Clearly not. That's the conclusion he's drawing them to. He says they're going to be banished, driven away. We know that comes when they're exiled. 
They're going to be expelled from the, their land for a time. The northern Israelites, obviously, that happens under Assyria. It waits all the way to the Romans for the nation of Judah to eventually be expelled. Then in verse 9, Isaiah explains there is a pardon coming. There is a plan to pardon Judah and to bring them back into the kingdom. But only after God has destroyed all the idols and the nation's affection for such things. And in the course of that, he will isolate Jerusalem. He will destroy it. We know that comes into the Romans as well. First under the Babylonians, I guess, later into the Romans. And it will become desolate for a time. Why? Why do they go through this period of judgment on the way to glory eventually? Because they lack discernment. Discernment, he says. The word discernment in Hebrew it simply means understanding in the sense of knowing the Lord and knowing His way of righteousness. They didn't know Him and they didn't know His way of righteousness. Well, that describes an unbeliever in general, doesn't it? And in effect, that's what he's saying. They're blind and they're dead in their sin and therefore they're under judgment. But because of His promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... He cannot leave them there as a nation. Now, he might on an individual basis, but over the course of history as a nation, he's made a promise concerning that nation. He has to eventually turn in grace and restore them. But he takes his time doing it. Notice Isaiah says, in that day, the Lord is not kind or gracious to them. The in that day part is the important part. In other words, it's not to say God is always going to be without grace or kindness. It's in that day that he's not. In a future day, he will be. He returns to them. And then verse 12 shows that turn. As the Lord, he says, begins the threshing process. It starts at the waters of the Euphrates, goes all the way to the brook of Egypt. Remember, that's the borders of Israel. So, knowing that those are the borders of Israel, what did he just say? We, we sing it in a song. From sea to shining sea. That's kind of the way he just said it. I'm going to start a threshing and it's going to go from border to border, meaning every single Jew will experience it. No one's left out of my judgment in that respect. And in the course of that, that threshing for the entire nation, he says, they'll be caught up in this period. But then in verse 13, he says, all the Jews perishing outside the land will be called to return ultimately to worship in their land again. He just sums up how it all ends. They get to the point of the Messianic kingdom at some point when it's all said and done. That gets us into the thousand year reign. So there's, that's the end of the song. That's his summarization for the Jew of why all of these things are going to happen that he's described over the course of the little apocalypse. Finishing, of course, with the fact that they do arrive in their kingdom. So let's review what we learned in the little apocalypse in just one quick sentence or two, and then we'll move into the next series of events in chapter 28. It's basically snapshots in time of what takes place in the book of Revelation. Little, little pieces taken out and, ex and examined in the same order and in the same sequence as you see in the book of Revelation itself. Those events were first tribulation, kind of an overview of what that involved. Then we saw tribulation interrupted by the 144,000, the new evangelism of that time. Then a return to the events of tribulation, which is again consistent with the book of Revelation. Then the return of Christ. Then him setting up his kingdom. Then the Jews entering into their kingdom. The binding of Satan. The observations on Jesus as a just king ruling over the land. All of that's being done in the course of the book of, uh, of the little apocalypse. And now chapter 28 begins a new subsection of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah's little apocalypse is over. And this has obviously been the pattern we've seen now for quite a while. He'll, he'll have a theme for a time and then he sets it aside and begins something new. 
This new section is one of the largest in the book. It's some of the best known. It's also some of the most fascinating. It still has the, the same basic pattern. We're going to see Isaiah continuing to develop out more and more information about the end times, including some things, as I would expect, that you've not heard. And then mixing that with contemporary history for him, contemporary to his day. Chapter 28 is a complicated chapter. To set it up requires some background. Background both in terms of the book and in terms of history, if, if we're going to understand chapter 28 well. Chapter 28, all the way through chapter 35, is called the Book of Woes. It's a section in which we see Isaiah uh, summarizing in his own day things that are yet to come for Israel or for others. <laughs> it's a great departure from the, from the otherwise upbeat tone of his book. So in chapter 28, the book of woes, in chapter 28 through about 35, Isaiah is going to explain the circumstances in Judah. Now, I'm going to be more specific going into this section of Isaiah's book than we may have been up till now at times when I talk about the Jewish people. There is Judah. It's one tribe, but it's typically a name used to describe the southern kingdom, which actually consisted of at least three tribes, right? In, in, in whole terms, you have Judah, you had Benjamin, and you had the Levites who lived in the temple. Had no land, but they were part of the temple. So at the very least, you had three tribes out of the 13 living in the southern kingdom of Judah. And instead of saying Judah, Benjamin, Levites, Judah, Benjamin, Levites, we just said Judah, and the word Judah became a term for southern kingdom. The same thing is true with Ephraim. I could say Ephraim, Dan, Gath, Reuben, oh, forget it, Ephraim. So when we say northern kingdom, we just say Ephraim. So that's how you can think of these two words. So I'm going to say at times Judah or if I'm going to say Ephraim because the two are now being looked at distinctly separate in this chapter. Now, here's where history comes back in. In the book of Emmanuel, early in this book of Isaiah, in the section we call the book of Emmanuel, starting with about chapter seven, we learned about this man, Ahaz. Remember him? He's king. He had a chance to decide who to trust when he needed defense against the approaching Assyrians. He also had the northern kingdom of Ephraim and Syria aligning together against him as well. He had Egypt in the south, which was traditionally an enemy of his. He had the Philistines and so on. He was trying to figure out where his allies were and how he could defend himself against the Assyrians. And instead of doing none of the above and depending on God to defend them, as God had promised through Isaiah... He decided, no, I need extra help. He went to Assyria. He actually went to Assyria and said, you don't have to come invade me. We can be friends. And Assyria eventually came in and did conquer both Syria and Ephraim, but didn't stop there, as you remember, and came barreling into Judah and decided he didn't need Judah's help and started to take over Judah. So, in a sense, Ahaz made a, a pact with the enemy and, and got into bed with the enemy, and they turned out to double-cross him. The events of that day resulted in King Ahaz and the nation of Judah being essentially dominated by the Assyrians for 14 years. Now, after 14 years, two political factions developed in the nation of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. One faction said, we're tired of the Assyrian domination. We need to do something about this. They said, let's have an alliance with Egypt and see if Egypt will help us so one group said, go to the Egyptians, get their help. Another group 
led by Isaiah, said, God has appointed the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to this end, to this occupation. You cannot go after help from Egypt because God has appointed this judgment. Stop kicking against the goads, basically. Stop fighting God's judgment. Who is king when this debate is taking place? Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's successor. So Hezekiah had these two options. Does he go with the, let's get Egypt and kick the Assyrians? Or did he go with Isaiah's decree to hold fast? Well, Hezekiah is known as a good king. And in a rare moment of poor decision making, he sides with the decision to go after help from the Egyptians. What they did becomes incredibly important historically for the nation of Israel. They entered into a covenant with Egypt. A covenant of protection and mutual uh, an alliance, I guess you could say. They get into bed with one of their historic enemies, Egypt. So, in chapter 28, Isaiah speaks about this covenant and against this covenant and tells, prophesies how it will lead to the downfall of Judah. So the same Isaiah that said, don't, don't do anything, when, they find, when Hezekiah made the wrong choice and goes into an alliance or a covenant with Egypt, he then writes chapter 28 and says, okay, now, here's what you got coming for that mistake. For repeating the mistake of Ahaz, you got something more coming. But in typical Isaiah fashion, he uses these contemporary events to draw a parallel to a future time in the history of the nation of Israel. A parallel between this covenant, between Judah and Egypt, and a future covenant, which is going to take place between a regathered Israel and another powerful enemy who offers protection to the Jews if they would enter into a covenant with him. Do you know who I'm talking about? The covenant that the future regathered nation of Israel will enter into with the Antichrist. The one that's discussed in Daniel chapter 9. So what Isaiah says they're doing as they enter into this covenant with Egypt is they are foretelling their greater covenant with an even greater enemy under similar circumstances, seeking protection but going to the wrong place for it. So, chapter 28 is an indictment against the leaders of Israel who ignored Isaiah's counsel and made a covenant with Egypt, but it flows into a description of the woes that will come upon Israel in the future for their covenant with the Antichrist. So I'm giving you all of that up front because it's an incredibly difficult chapter to follow unless you see that or know of that parallel in advance, I think. It makes a much easier job of seeing what we see. So let's begin in chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trotted underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as he has it in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Now, you notice which people he's talking about here as we open up? Not Judah, Ephraim. And I wanted to make a point earlier about the fact that these are distinct. So we know he's talking here about the northern kingdom as he opens the chapter. 
And he introduces this woe with the northern kingdom as a negative example. The bulk of chapter 28 is talking about Judah and what they did in their alliance with Egypt. But he opens it with an introduction citing their northern brethren who by this point have already been dispersed or are about to be dispersed by the Assyrians. So the focus here is on the leadership of Ephraim as a negative example for what the leadership of Judah should expect to see for doing the wrong thing against God. He mentions here the princes who are described as drunkards, a way of describing these men who led the northern kingdom astray. The northern kingdom itself is referred to here as a fading flower, probably more specifically their capital city of Samaria, a fading flower in the valley. They're going to be destroyed here by a mighty overflowing waters. Remember what that always means in Scripture? What is a flood or overflowing waters a picture of in Scripture? An army. An army that rolls in and just wipes something out quickly. It describes the power and the speed of an advancing army. Who sent the army? In the verses I read. Yeah, by his hand, right? It says there that it was cast down to earth with his hand. This is further affirmation that the Assyrian advance and their success in battle was all by God's design. That's Assyria, that was what Isaiah had been trying to tell the leaders of Judah already. But if you notice in verses 5 and 6, there is a believing remnant. They are left in northern Israel. And it is, from their point of view, God's justice is a delight to the people who themselves delight in his justice. So they, there's a smaller group, a, a remnant as always, within the nation of, of Ephraim who see this opportunity for their, need, their leaders to be taken down and the nation to be dispersed as, a, in a sense, a delight in the fact that they want God to, to bring justice against the unjust. Okay? Now, verse 7. We're going to turn now from that introduction. Verse 7. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Now that turn is subtle, but the words are unmistakable. In verse 7, he says, Now these also reel. He said, Ephraim, you guys had these drunken leaders. And then in verse 7, now these also reel. And these also refers to the, a new group of leaders now in Judah. He begins to turn. And you'll see as we go further into the text, he's clearly talking about Judah now. So like Ephraim, Judah is led by men who struggle, or not struggle, stagger rather, drunk with wine. What we're talking about here is a kind of drunkenness either in power or in debauchery or in sin generally. Men who cannot be trusted for their judgments because they're not led by the Lord. It's a fleshly kind of existence. That's the nature of the leadership they had above them. The table, the vomit, that's a graphic way to, to illustrate their sad state. The effect to which they are being debilitated and made the place unclean. Another way, another way to look at it from a Jewish point of view. These are the same leaders who ignored Isaiah's counsel to avoid that covenant. Now, the next series of verses are some of my favorite because... Again, without an understanding of what's really going on, they are so hard to make sense of. Just from what I was able to gather, it became utterly clear what this is talking about. And it's really very funny. Verse 9. Now notice, this is in quotations here. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And he who said to them, 
Here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. In the Hebrew, you get a very funny scene here, but a sad one in the end. To begin with, my translation into English actually confuses the meaning. In fact, it kind of gives you an insight here into how difficult this passage is to interpret it. In the way this is set up in my text, you'll have to look at your own to see if, if yours is set up in the same way. But in verses 12, 11 and 12, or actually go all the way back to 9, is the he capitalized in your, in your Bible? To whom would he teach knowledge? Is the he in your Bible capitalized? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Because that's not in the Hebrew. That's an interpreter's assessment of who is the one supposedly speaking here. Of course, if I capitalize it, I've decided for you what the meaning is. It's wrong to capitalize it here because that's not God being quoted. Not at all. To whom would he teach knowledge is not God teaching, but who? Who is trying to teach somebody something in this scene, in this historical moment that we've been talking about? It was Isaiah. Isaiah was trying to teach the leaders of Israel what they should do. In 14 years of, of occupation by Assyria, Hezekiah is faced with a decision. Should he align with Egypt or should he listen to Isaiah's counsel? Now, Isaiah here is quoting for you and I what he heard from those who mocked him when he tried to give counsel. So as he went to the leaders of Judah and said, here's what you should do, here's what they said to him. And he's quoting their words back. He says, to whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Who are you to teach me? You're going to try to teach me something? Was I born yesterday? That's the way we would say that. Was I just weaned from milk? Was I just born yesterday? Am I, am I so foolish and young? I can't make these decisions. I can't see what my best options are. Who are you, foolish man, to come in here and teach me anything? All right? That's the mocking that he's receiving, and he's quoting it now. Here's the part that really convinces you of what's going on here and where the Hebrew becomes essential. That strange repetitive phrase, right? Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. What does that mean? In the Hebrew, it's the same word repeated four times and a different word then repeated four times. Then the first line where verse 10 says order on order, order on order, the word on is not there in the Hebrew. That's an English assumption. We've tried to figure out what it could possibly mean and Order, 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 order doesn't mean anything to us, so we put a preposition in between to see if it helped. It doesn't. The word in Hebrew there, in that first line, is savaz, T-S-A-V, order. And then the very next line is kav, Q-A-V, kav, it means line. They're single-syllable sounds in Hebrew. They would be similar to me going, stuttering. They're mocking Isaiah's words as if he were the village idiot and can't speak without stuttering. It's not that the words have any meaning relevant to the message. It's a mocking way of saying, oh, who are you to teach? Uh, we, were we just born yesterday? That's the effect of the language, literally. It's funny, isn't it? Especially when I do it in front of all of you. It's the sound of someone stuttering. Look at the text next after that. Verse 11. Here's where he starts to defend himself. He says, indeed, he, speaking of himself, Isaiah, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Think of it this way. 
I came and I gave you God's word. You turned to me and said, you're a fool. Isaiah doesn't know what he's talking about. Isaiah then says, okay, I am going to speak to you. I'm going to speak to you through a stuttering voice and a foreign tongue. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Assyrians. He's saying, this is all being prophesied before the Assyrians come into siege Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. He's saying to them, you are taking bad counsel when you consider going against my word. And you talk to me like I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm telling you, if you won't listen to me, you'll listen to a tongue that you don't even understand. It sounds like stuttering when you listen to it. A foreign language, in other words. And he says in verse 11, through stammering lips in a foreign tongue, he who said to them, meaning Isaiah, he who said to them, here is the rest, give rest to the weary, here is the repose, here's my solution, here's the way you can rest in God in this situation. But they would not listen. And then in verse 13, so the word of the Lord to them will be, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken, snared, and taken captive. If, in other words, if you're not going to listen to me, then listen to that foreign tongue. It's condemning you to being judged for your unwillingness to listen to me. So the voice they heard in that day is what he's referring to. Does anybody know where these verses get used in the New Testament? Where have you heard these verses mentioned before? Anybody know? 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 14. What did we study in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians? Anybody remember? What's that chapter famous for? The speaking of tongues. The teaching on tongues in chapter 14 of that book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul draws a reference to this section of Isaiah because he makes a very similar point. This will give you a lot of insight into the, the true understanding of the gift of tongues in the church. When you understand why he chose this part of Isaiah as a proof text when he was trying to explain how and when the gift of tongues should be, should be expected to be found in the church. In Isaiah's day, the Jews of his day failed to believe the message they heard from Isaiah and they mocked him for his message. And in response to that unbelief, that unbelief is answered with a strange people showing up speaking a strange tongue, sounding odd to their ears, and to the effect of what? Not to the effect of the nation of Israel repenting and turning, but merely to the effect that they remained unbelieving and were held under judgment for it. They suffered penalty for it. Okay, that's the effect in Isaiah's day. Paul says all of that experience summed up in the couple of verses that he quoted can be useful to understanding the gift of tongues in the time of the early church. Just as in Isaiah's day, the effect of the experience in the church is not to set the Jews free, but to bring them under judgment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the gift of tongues was not for the believer, but for the unbelieving Jew. The point being simply that when the Jewish people had a messenger come to them declaring what they should do, they mocked that messenger and ignored his message. In the day of the church, it was who? Christ. So Christ came with a message to the Jewish leadership. They rejected and mocked him. So instead of hearing from the true messenger and receiving him, God sent strange people who spoke in strange tongues so that the unbeliever would be judged with that, not converted by it. Just as in Isaiah's day. Paul even makes that point. He says, that's what this is about. Then 
the judgment for the nation of Israel in the time of Hezekiah is accomplished under the Assyrians. Once that was done, the point of it was over, right? Jews aren't still being mocked by the Assyrians today, right? There was a point in time in which that judgment took hold, had its effect, and it's over. Move that forward to the church in 1 Corinthians 14. The Jews rejected their messenger. Their penalty was they're going to hear from a foreign tongue. It's going to confirm their judgment. And that judgment was what? That the leadership of Israel and that entire generation would be wiped out. That happened in AD 70. Once that judgment was made true, it's done. The the point for the purpose of tongues is done. It's no more. No more than Isaiah kept going around giving this prophecy generations later. It doesn't make any sense. It's for an audience of Jews who rejected a messenger in a certain day and as a result received a certain penalty. All right, now, now he's going to get into the Antichrist. He jumps forward prophetically now in chapter 28 to that future day. So he moves off the current day, talking about Hezekiah and all that came with that, moves forward to a future day. Verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. From morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And it, will she- and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. My wife has those words on a pillow on her bed. She claims I'm a hog with the covers. Verse 21. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim, and he will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task and to work his work, his his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Because of the way we set this chapter up, you should have seen clues in the text that told you we are looking at a different covenant in a different time. But if you didn't have that background, you might not have picked up on the distinction. Remember, He says, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who lead Israel. So he's talking now about leaders of Israel, men who scoff as well at prophets or at God's word. But he's not talking about the men who did it in his day. He's moved beyond Hezekiah. He's talking about future leadership. The leaders of Jerusalem in the last days, they are, in a sense, the natural successors to to the men of Isaiah's day. They're, They're of the same cloth. They're cut from the same cloth. These are... Uh, leaders of Israel who scoff at truth and at God's word and at his prophets. They're just the latest in a long line of leaders who have done the same throughout history during the time of Israel's apostasy. And they are in the last day. So they are the leaders of interest in these last moments. They, he says in verse 15, they enter into a covenant with death. This is the moment Daniel predicts in chapter nine. Now, if you don't know Daniel, let me read you two verses where Daniel himself says that the nation of Israel will be bound up at a time in the future, bound up in a covenant 
with the Antichrist. Verse 26 of Daniel 9. And we're jumping into the middle of something here. It's, an, it's unavoidable. And we'll, we'll just ask you to roll with me here. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. In summary, he says, after the Messiah is cut off, which we know is the time of his crucifixion, and by cut off here, we're not talking just about his physical death. It's always in relationship to Israel. Israel's Messiah came, offered himself. They cut him off. They rejected him. Okay? You, he, didn't, he isn't dead. He was resurrected. But the point is, from their point of view, they cut off interest in him. He's gone. Jesus is not their Messiah from their point of view. Okay? That starts a time clock of sorts. From that point forward, he says, there will be several things that will transpire. Because they cut him off, that generation is judged. And the judgment as Christ gave it at the end of chapter 13 and at the end of chapter 19 of Luke is that they would see their city destroyed. And we know that happened in AD 70, end of the Romans. So it took a little while from the time of Christ's death, but it was sure, and it happened. So that's in verse 26 of Daniel. It says, The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the Roman people. Its end will come with a flood. There's that flood reference again. A flood means what? A big army flooding in. That's exactly how it took place. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. For whom will there be war even to the end? The Jewish people. No peace. No stability in their land. Never a sense where they get away from an adversary. They're always trying to protect their borders and worry about the next invasion. Even to the end there will be war. And what else? Desolations. A desolation by definition is what? Abuse of the temple. Desolating the temple itself. The holy mountain and the temple grounds. That continues to today. We've got a mosque on it. That's a desolation from a Jewish point of view. So wars continue. Desolations are determined. This is all a consequence of them cutting off the Messiah for themselves. Alright? Verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many. If we're to stay exegetically accurate in interpreting the text, we have to go back up into the text to say, who is the he referring to? And the only person that's been named prior that a he could refer to is the prince. In verse 26. Earlier it was said, the people of the prince who is to come. That's the Roman people, the people from whom the prince will arrive. Roman doesn't just mean, by the way, Italy. Roman could mean just Gentile. We don't know exactly what it means. It just means not a Jew. That's the most definitive answer I can give you. The prince is the he in verse 27. Who is the prince of this people? It's the Antichrist. We know that from elsewhere in Paul's writing as well. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Why many? Why doesn't it say with all? Because there's a remnant of Jews who do not accept this covenant, who do not agree with it, who will not be bound by it. They become the ones who go where? To Petra. This is happening, he says, for one week. The word week there in the Hebrew, literally the word week in Hebrew is, some of you know this, I think, seven. So literally it's, he will make it for one seven. We would say things like a dozen when we mean twelve, right? So think of the word seven here in the Hebrew as a way of saying seven of something. We know from other references earlier in Daniel that seven means, in this case, seven years. So, he will make a firm covenant with the many for seven years. 
But in the middle of the seven years, or in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings. That gives us some insight into what this covenant was all about. The covenant, it appears, was intended to give Israel free reign again on their temple for the sake of setting up a temple temple structure of some kind or a tabernacle again and re-accomplishing the sacrificial system where they want to on their temple mount. That's the nature of the covenant. It's supposed to last seven years. But at the middle point, he, the prince again, puts a stop to it. He breaks the covenant. What did we just study in Isaiah? Isaiah says, you made a covenant with death and with Sheol you've made a pact. And look at what they say about it. Now, they don't, he's quoting what they should say, even if they are not honest enough to say it in the day. They say, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. There seems to be some suggestion by that, that the people in that day have a sense that something bad is going to happen. Whether it's the Antichrist maybe taking over the world, and they, they're, they're, it's like Hitler and Russia. Russia may have feared that Hitler was gaining enough power that one day it could threaten Russia, so they tried to stop it, cut it short, by going into a treaty, a, a, an alliance with, with Hitler thinking that if they're in alliance with Hitler, he'll leave them alone. Turned out it didn't work out very well, did it? He went in after him anyway. Similarly, these Jewish leaders say, the old saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. It'd be better to just get into a covenant with this, this guy. We see what's coming. We see what he's leading to. He seems to be a new Hitler. Let's just get into a covenant with him. He's going to let us sacrifice on our temple again. That's what we've always wanted. And it keeps them off our backs. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, they say. For we have made falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. Now that's the part they probably don't admit to, but Isaiah is calling them out for who they really are. Now, the next series of verses in Isaiah. So, so this covenant is not going to last as long as they think. If you look just further down in the verses I've already read in Isaiah 28, verse 18, God says to the nation of Israel, your covenant with death will be canceled. Your pact with Sheol will not stand And that's not necessarily to mean God is the one stopping it, though clearly all of this is according to God's desires and plan. But it may just reflect the fact that the Antichrist himself goes back on it. You think this is your plan? You think this is going to work out for you? Remember the parallels that Isaiah is trying to make through this discussion? Hezekiah, you think getting in bed with Egypt is really the solution to your problem? You've just bedded with falsehood and deception. And it's not going to work. And in the case of this future event, at the midpoint of the seven years, it's put to an end anyway. And it stops. Now, look at the section that divides, that separates those two places I just read. Verses 16 and 17, particularly verse 16. You've heard these before, right? I am going to lay in Zion a stone, a testly stone, a costly cornerstone, right? That's quoted in the New Testament. Who's he talking about? Obviously, Jesus Christ. Why is that coming up here? Think of it as a contrast. You have the Jews in Hezekiah's day who could have chosen to align with who? Not Isaiah per se, but who? God. Because Isaiah's word was, accepting your circumstances is submitting to God's decree and authority over you for the sins of Ahaz. Like a son or a daughter who would respectfully remain in their room when grounded for doing the wrong thing as opposed to the one who sneaks out the window. See the difference? In Hezekiah's case, he did not side with God and God's decree and seek his 
safety, if you will, there. He tried to side with the enemy. And in this day, it's much the same. To the Jew who in this moment has the opportunity to align with the Antichrist and that covenant or with God and His Word, there's a stark dis- d- difference there. There's, there's all the difference in the world. There's a difference between martyrdom if you try to evade the enemy or compromise with him to your own destruction. And in that option, God lays it out for us here in the text. He says, you can be the one who made a covenant with death. Or in verse 16, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a testly stone. And then he says, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. In contrast to that, he looks further down. He says in verse 17, the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters will overflow the secret place. But the one who is rested in Christ is not going to be disturbed by what is about to happen on this earth. What happens to the Jews who hold the line, if, if you will, stay on God's side? Where do they end up? Petra. They escape, for the most part, the, the devastation and the, uh, the reign of this madman on earth. They do it in faithfulness, waiting for Christ or waiting for God to rescue them. Whether they know it to be Christ or not is not necessarily the case initially. But they remain Orthodox Jews, in other words. They remain true to God's Word and not And they do not compromise in the way that's being offered through the Antichrist. God says in that group there will be certain certain comfort and security. Later he goes on to say, look to the verse 18, the covenant with death will be canceled. And then down further in that verse, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. Earlier you said, oh, we've got ourselves covered. We won't have any worry when the overwhelming scourge comes. God says, no, when the overwhelming scourge comes, you're where it's going to trample first. That's where it breaks out in Jerusalem first. When the Antichrist goes into the temple and commits the abomination of desolation, Christ said, when you see that happen, flee to the mountains, get out of Jerusalem, because it's about, literally, hell's about to break loose, and it starts in Jerusalem with those Jews who made that pact and were so sure it was going to save them. That's the contrast. And in verse 19, he says, it will be sheer terror to understand what this means. And that's not so much a reference to you and I today, right? Though we can certainly appreciate it. The terror lands on those who live it. Who in the moment realize, oh, now I see what we did. Now I understand what's going on. Oh my goodness, we're in trouble. That's what this is all a reference to. And by the way, that verse 20, the bed is too short. I want to stretch out. In other words, there's, there's nowhere they can go to find relief and find comfort and find protection. There's no escaping the Antichrist once he comes after the Israelites if they're not already Uh, being comforted in Petra. They're going to be under the scourge. They can't avoid it. Now, in describing this period of destruction, he draws a comparison to to some history in Israel in verse 21. As we close this out, he says, Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon will be comparisons for this time. I won't give you the background on those just for the sake of our time tonight, but those are both places where David in one case or Joshua in another found victory against overwhelming odds in the face of their own armies. What's the picture being drawn out? Just take those two men. David? Joshua? Who are they pictures of? Christ. David, of course, is the picture of Christ ruling on his throne. And Joshua, his name is Yeshua, he's the one who leads you into the promised land. These are the men who fight the battle ahead of you. These men, in the way they won their battles in the face of overwhelming odds, are examples of how the Jews who rest in God in that day can still find their victory in God's power to do that for them. Furthermore, at the very end of the verses I read, he says, there is a destruction 
of the entire earth. Look at verse 23 as we finish out the chapter. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horse eventually damages it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. It's a parable. Like a lot of parables, you have to understand its principle in real life before you can apply it in a spiritual sense. The principle in real life is pretty easy, particularly if you're a farmer, I guess. If you plow ground indefinitely, why would you? The plowing is always a predecessor to sowing. So you plow because you eventually intend to sow. And the parable's connection to the story is, Israel, you will be going through a scourge in this time of tribulation. But does God, like a farmer, plan to just scourge you at length indefinitely? Is there any good to come out of that? Can you plant and achieve any kind of harvest or fruit, so to speak, if you never do more than just plow? Well, God's all about the fruit. So the point here is, in this time when you see the scourge coming, it's temporary. And it inevitably leads to planting, sowing, and then harvesting down the road. You can trust that God's purpose here, in other words, is good. Do not assume you must fall into the leagues with the league of the enemy, the, the, the alliance with the enemy, if you're to save yourself, because you think, oh my goodness, I can never escape this. No, he's saying there is light at the end of this tunnel. Similarly, the second part of the parable just emphasizes a similar point. When I take all that grain and I put it in the threshing floor, and if you know from past teaching in this class, threshing is a picture of what? The beating of judgment, God's judgment, right? Threshing is a violent activity if you just think about it from the grain's perspective, right? And that's the way he's using the parable. The farmer knows that if I take the wrong approach in the threshing, I destroy the, the, the grain. If I take my ox cart and run it across grain that's too soft, I just destroy it. Some kinds of grain needs an ox cart. Other kinds, he says, just needs a rod or a club. His point again is, he knows how much the nation of Israel can take without destroying it. So though it may feel pretty bad in the moment, a faithful response that trusts in God will arrive at a good outcome for those people. Giving up on God, so to speak, and seeking your, your protection from the enemy guarantees your judgment. So both of these parables at the end were intended to enforce for anyone who would understand this text that they have a better hope in God than they could ever have in the enemy, despite how bad it may look in the circumstances they face. In tribulation, God brings wrath to destroy some Jews, yes, but to chasten others only, ultimately to save the nation in the remnant. So that's the end of tonight. That's, that takes us through the first chapter of the woes that come upon Israel because they ignore the counsel of God in the time of Ahaz. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, that we are here tonight as always with the chance to study. But I also thank You, Father, tonight for the insight You've given us in the Word for the time that is to come to the world in judgment. By faith, Father, we know we will escape that time and thankfully so. But Father, perhaps in our, our growing awareness of it, knowledge of it, and, and understanding of it, 
you may find that a useful thing in our lives to, to guide us into greater righteousness now and perhaps a greater urgency to bring the word to others. I pray it could be that purpose or one perhaps even better, Father, according to your will. And uh, as always, Father, thank you that we continue to study and to diligently move through this book. I pray that would continue as well. Let us uh, complete this work we've begun. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.